On Amazon Web Services, there are many ways to run an application on a single node. The first compute option on AWS was the EC2 virtual server instance. But EC2 is a large abstraction compared to what many people need for their nodes, which is a container with a smaller set of resources to work with. Containers can be run within a managed cluster like ECS or EKS. Containers can be run on their own, such as in a AWS Fargate instance, or simply as a Docker container running without a container orchestration tool. Beyond the option of these explicit container instances, users can run their application as a serverless function-as-a-service, such as AWS Lambda. Functions-as-a-service abstract away the container and let the developer operate at a higher level, while also providing some cost savings. Developers use these different compute options for different reasons. Deepak Singh is the Director of Compute Services at Amazon Web Services, and he joins the show to discuss the use cases and the trade-offs of these options. Deepak also discusses how these tools are useful internally to AWS. ECS and Lambda are high-level APIs that are used to build even higher-level services such as AWS Batch, which is a service for performing batch processing over large data sets. Before we get started, this is the last week of the Find Collabs Hackathon. This is the hackathon for the new company that I'm building, Find Collabs. You can find out more about this hackathon by going to findcollabs.com slash hackathon or softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon. The first place prize is $4,000 cash along with some SE Daily hoodies and an appearance on Software Engineering Daily. And the second place prize is similar, but $1,000. There's also other prizes, and it's a great place to find and collaborate with other people. You can go to findcollabs.com to check out what Find Collabs is. It's a place to find collaborators and build projects. And you can go to findcollabs.com slash hackathon to find out more about the hackathon. Thanks for listening. Deepak Singh, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me back. I want to start by talking about the ideas that we explored in the last episode just a little bit, specifically on the abstraction of compute, because we just did a, st- a show about the abstraction of storage with uh, with Kevin Miller. And I think pairing those two discussions of, of storage and compute, both in a cloud and a single node context, will make for, for some good lessons around computer science. So if we just think from the point of view of a single node that we want to run, a single application node. There are many ways where we can run a single application node in the cloud. Describe some of those ways. Yeah, a great question. I used to have a slide that I used to show, I think in the beginning, in the first slide of every talk that I used to give back in the day. And it literally said, I used to show two pictures. One was of a server, like a physical server, and one was of quote-unquote, my server, and it said easy to run instances. And quite in those days, that was the simplest way. This is, you know, now nine years ago, something like that. The simplest way to launch an instance, which was easy to run instances, M1 small, something like that, which is you, at the end of it, you had one machine 
one virtual machine with a network that you could do things on. It's actually the first thing I ever did on EC2 back in the day. Now, you know, 2006, when EC2 first came out. Since then, the ways that you can run a single compute entity has, has evolved. You can still use the EC2 CLI. You can use APIs. You can spin up something like AWS Fargate, which is almost like a custom-built you could use it as a custom-built instance. Give it some CPU, give it some memory, give it a network, and at the end of it, you have you can put code on it and run. But I still think that the EC2 run instance is called with a T3 small or T3 micro, I guess now. is the simplest way to spin up a single machine if what you want to do is spin up the machine, then log into it later, and then use it for as, as a machine that happens to be on the other side of a network. But I think our customers have gotten a little more sophisticated. They want to declare intent, and they want to be able to, at the end of it, have the machine run and do things. From an AWS uh, context, there's many ways to do that. You could use something as simple as Elastic Beanstalk, where you decide that you have an app, an in- a three-tier app that's running on one node. You put it behind. You, you actually don't do anything. You t- give it that intent, and it spins up an app. Similarly, I think a service that is near and dear to my heart is AWS Batch. The job of AWS Batch is to spin up just the right amount of compute that you need for the work that you have in hand. And you could say, I want no more than one machine. And you could basically say, here's my job. And as long as the job, you you put the job into a queue, and as long as there's work in that queue, it'll keep spinning up that one machine to do that work, and then it'll shut it down. So if you have no work to do, you don't have a machine. If you have work to do, you have one machine. And that model, I think, is pretty powerful because you're not thinking about the machine now. You're thinking about the work. And you've just put a constraint on that work that says, don't run it on more than one machine. And I think that's, that's a very powerful paradigm that I think more and more customers are asking us to look at in many different ways. In the context of batch computing, that's AWS Batch. So I completely agree with you about the idea of People just want to have a way to get their applications to run on the cloud, and they don't necessarily want to address individual server instances. They may may not want to even address individual functions. However, if you're building something like AWS Batch, somebody is going to have to be addressing servers, somebody is going to have to be addressing functions, and so... I do want to explore a little bit more the different ways that we can address these particular servers, these particular functions, and the trade-offs that we're making along this spectrum. So whether we're talking about running an an EC2 instance, AWS Fargate container, a Docker container running on an EC2 instance, an AWS Lambda function... Give me the spectrum of options for running a single node and the trade-offs that we're making along that spectrum. So I just gave, uh, just before this conversation, gave a talk where I talked about the AWS shared responsibility model. And one very, very simple way to think about, and I'll use the context of EC2 because that's the best starting point for, to have that discussion, which is and with EC2, AWS is responsible for the physical infrastructure, the physical machine, the network, Everything up to user space. The operating system that your applications run in, the, uh, the application itself, the permissions on what that 
instance is allowed to do are your responsibility as a customer. You have to set the security groups. You have to decide whether you want to allow ingress, which VPC it goes in. Those are things that a customer sets up. But we are responsible for everything underneath that. The next stage above that, and I'll use databases as an example, right? You want to run a database. You can run it on EC2 yourself, uh, or take the container example. You can take a Docker container and run it on an EC2 instance. You are still responsible for the lifecycle and lifetime and the patching of that instance. You are responsible for landing that Docker container onto that instance. Either you log into that instance and do a Docker pull and a Docker run, you know, you pull a Docker run and it pulls the instance from some registry somewhere. But how you do it, when you do it, everything is in your is your responsibility. AWS is still at the, we will give you an instance and we will guarantee that underneath the hood we are doing the best we can to give you a high quality experience. Actually, you can take that one step further now that we do bare metal instances. You could in theory be responsible for running your own hypervisor on a bare metal instance because you can install and run it. But I think what we found is our customers fill every category. There are customers who want to run their own hypervisor on a bare metal instance. Most customers historically have wanted to run their applications on an EC2 instance. So they are responsible for selecting the operating system. Do I want to run Red Hat? Do I want to run Amazon Linux 2? Uh, do I want to run Ubuntu and the applications inside it? But more and more and more, they're starting to move towards a world where they want us to take on more and more of that responsibility. So if shared responsibility is line in a box. That line keeps going up where everything underneath is what is AWS's responsibility and what's on top is the customer's responsibility. The next stage is running something with ECS or EKS. Or actually the next stage is running your own Kubernetes where you now have a scheduler making those decisions for you but you are still responsible for the box that it's running it on. With ECS and EKS, the running of the scheduling system is no longer your responsibility you are still responsible and have ownership of the nodes that your containers run on, but the whole management infrastructure is no longer your responsibility. It can get automated away quite a bit, especially if you start using things like autoscaling, where if a node fails, it gets spun up again. You are no longer worrying about, oh, I now manually need to start another node because autoscaling has done that for you. We've automated the orchestration of your machine is now handled by something else. The next step with that is Fargate. The machine goes away. All you're responsible for now is your container. Uh, the patching of the host operating system, not your responsibility. You don't even have to think about it. AWS is making that decision for you. You are still responsible for your container, ho container itself. Uh, if you're running an operating system inside your container, you're responsible for that. You're responsible for if you pick up a malicious container from somewhere, that's on you. We have now prevented it from breaking out into the machine and infecting somebody else. But the malicious container is still yours. And then the ultimate step, well, for now, in that shared responsibility model is Lambda, where all you're responsible for is the code that you bring, not the container, just the code. And uh, at that point of time, AWS has said, we are taking all the responsibility of scaling, uh, concurrency, encapsulation, everything, your only responsibility is, here's a function. I'm going to run it. Make it run. And I think our customers actually enjoy the fact that they have the full spectrum of responsibilities because even within the same application or the same company, you may have all of those. They may be running a database by themselves because they have some specialized needs on EC2. A big chunk of their application might be running inside Lambda functions and a number of services within their application might be running inside something like ECS or Fargate or EKS. So 
the fact that you have the flexibility allows customers to reason about their application based on their needs at the time. I do think in an ideal case, more and more customers want to run in as much of a quote-unquote serverless way as possible where most of the responsibility is taken on by AWS. You are making a trade-off. You're giving, you're assuming that we are going, the behavior of the system, AWS will handle it correctly, right? When to scale, how to scale, all of that you're leaving to AWS. So I think that's, that's the trade-off you're making. When we think about the different kinds of workloads that we might potentially want to run on one of these compute mediums, like Fargate or Lambda or EC2 or whatever we're, we're running our stuff on, we could think in terms of the, the Kubernetes types of workloads, which are stateful, stateless, batch, and daemon. If we were to map those different workload types, the batch, the daemon, the stateful, and the stateless, to compute mediums on, on AWS, what does that mapping look like in your mind? Well, you can run EKS and you get all of those sure, as Kubernetes. absolutely. <laughs> That's a good starting absolutely. point. ECS is much the same, right? You can both mostly run any kind of application. But I mean more abstract. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what we found when we launched ECS. We had two classes of customers right in the beginning. There were people, well, let's make it three. There were people who wanted something that made it easy for them to deploy code. That was the canonical container use case. I have code, I want to encapsulate it, I want to deploy it onto a machine and have it execute there. And it made it super easy. Container orchestration in general made that easy. There was a class of customers that was, I want something that can, allows me to run these stateless services. Like A lot of those customers are now using Fargate because it's stateless by define, uh, design. But we found these customers that were building these workflow engines, these batch computing engines on top of ECS. They were essentially, if you are familiar with batch computing, batch jobs get spread out across many machines. You need some engine that makes the decision on how they get spread out. You need an engine that decides how you divvy up the work. And most, and very often, it reads it off a queue. You're putting a job into some kind of queuing system, and it takes it off the queue and dis distributes it onto n number of machines. And everybody was reinventing the wheel. So we stepped back and said, okay, what if we, and they were using things like Grid Engine, like Slurm, they were doing it on EC2, or they were trying to use ECS. ECS allows you to write your own schedulers. They were writing custom schedulers on top of ECS to essentially achieve that. We said, okay, that seems unnecessary because everyone is reinventing the same wheel. What can we do? And can we do it in a way that takes advantage of the capabilities of the cloud, not using something that was written for more static infrastructure. And that was, that's what led to AWS Batch, which was declare your intent. Tell us how you want your work to be done. Do not even tell us what kind of machine you want to run it on. Just tell us how much CPU you need, roughly, how much memory you need, what ratio you might want. Put your work, give us the executable, just package it up in a container, put it in a queue, and let the system take over from there. The system will scale depending on demand. It'll scale down to zero when it's done, which is the I think one of the things that everyone wants to do, that when, they work, when you have no work to do, just spin everything down. And most importantly, the customer no longer had to decide what instance type to run on. The system made that decision for them. So even though Batch runs on ECS and there's EC2 instances underneath the hood, from a customer standpoint, you've abstracted away most of the decision making. All the customer now has to think about is, I have an executable, 
I roughly know the CPU to memory profile of this executable. It needs to fit and not get ohm killed <laughs> when, when it runs. And by the way, I'm going to scale horizontally and AWS make the decision for me. And I think that epiphany of the fact that we can build purpose-built systems on top of we happen to build it on ECS. We didn't have to. We could have built it in many ways. Containers makes it super easy to build a system like that. But the fact that we could build a purpose-built service for batch computing is what did that. Databases are very similar. People have been running databases on EC2 forever, but then you're responsible for managing and patching your database. RDS on RDS takes it one step further. Aurora takes it a step even further where you no longer think about the database at all, and it's a fully managed service. And the ultimate one is our DynamoDB with auto-scaling, where you literally don't have to think about anything. The system scales on its own. You do have to make some trade-offs because now you're moved to a different database architecture. So I think the approach that we have taken is we will give you the raw, most fundamental primitives that you need to be able to run any kind of application. But as we understand what trade-offs people are willing to make, we want to abstract that away and put them into purpose-built systems that allow people to do, batch allows you to do one thing, batch computing. But it's very effective at doing that. And it's a big enough use case that it's worth it. And we'll, you, you've done this with databases, we've done with the batch computing, and I think you'll see us do it for even more things in the future. So let's get to a conversation about AWS Batch, what it does, and what the architecture of the of the project is. Let's just start by defining batch computing as you see it. Yeah, so batch computing at its heart is I have some work to do. That work is best done by splitting it up across many, many machines. And the, the total work is not done until all the work, you know, everything has been processed. You have a data set that you want to process. You could run that data set on one machine. It'll take N time to process. But if I can break that work up into say, 10 copies. I can spin it onto 10 machines and in theory get it done in one-tenth of the time. That's the fundamental premise and promise of batch computing. You've taken a job, you've, batch, you've divided it up into many smaller chunks and distributed it over many machines, helping you get it done faster. But there's a subset of batch called, there's something called high-performance computing where all the machines are talking to each other and they're running in concert and not independently, which is high-performance computing. And that's a subset of batch computing. That's how I think about batch computing. That's As AWS, that's kind of how we've thought about it over the years. The biggest challenge in batch has always been what's the best way to distribute this work across whatever number of machines you have, and how sometimes, because you often have lots of work, how that work gets prioritized onto running on those machines, which is where things like queues come from so that you can have Job A has more priority than job B, so job A is always going to get scheduled first, and job B will get scheduled if you have the time and space to do it. I think those those are the patterns that have emerged in in the batch world that we've been we wanted to support from the beginning. Can and, you give can you give an example of a modern batch computing application that we can perhaps reuse? Yeah, I mean, the most simple one is this is a canonical example. Yeah. I have a bunch of images. I want to convert them into five different types of thumbnails fundamentally batch jobs. You could do them on your laptop, but if you have a million images, you'll be sitting there for a very long time. And you, and you know, batch computing just makes it easier for you to distribute that job onto an, a large number of machines, ideally suited for the cloud. Perfect. Although, you know, what I like about that example is that it's naively parallel, parallelizable. You could schedule each of those jobs onto uh, individual computers and have them finish when when they do, and then you've got all your work and it's done. 
there are other types of workloads that require some serializability between the different pieces of work that you're getting done. It, do you have a good example of a, of a serialized? Yeah. Uh, so science is a great place where this happens. So I come with, from a science background. In genomics, you have pipelines where you have a set of data, you process it. The next type of computing you want to do depends on the results of the first set. Yes. So you can't, comp you can't actually do it without actually having the first set finish. So you have a dependency graph. Like you have, you know, you can only do the next step if step one finishes. The Another sort of variant on that is parameter sweeps, where you have a single executable, a single data set, but what you, you want to run it across a number of different parameters and you apply the same parameter onto the data set. Those are common enough use cases that those uh, me mechanisms actually built into most batch computing systems. So in the case of AWS batch, uh, you actually have a dependency graph built in. Uh, the idea that job B cannot start because it depends on job A and it needs an exit code from job A is part of how batch AWS batch works. It's not unique to AWS batch. Most batch systems have that kind of capability. The second one is a concept called array jobs where you have an executable, you have a data set, and then you basically have a matrix. You give it a, a matrix of n, zero to n variables. You can have, I think, up to 500,000 with batch. And it essentially is one job that spawns 500,000 children jobs. Each is a copy of the same thing, just with a different starting point, a different variable that it's optimizing for, a different function it might be trying to optimize for. It's a very efficient way of doing very large jobs with a single call. And uh, that, those are, in batch, we call them array jobs. And that's, again, not an uncommon feature in most sophisticated batch computing systems. That's your point. That's where it gets more interesting. Yeah. So we've discussed some different types of batch computing. Explain what AWS Batch is. Yeah. So the idea of AWS Batch was, it batches two things. It is, uh, the way I like to think about it and is, and way a lot of our customers use it, is it's an execution system. So let's say I am a bioinformatics workflow engine. I have built the workflow engine to, you know, you have, you start off with some set of genes that you want to do some calculations on. You are using a set of tools that probably most biologists are familiar with. You just want to help them build a workflow system that they understand as not computational experts, that depending on the science that needs to be done executes the workflow, at the end of it, they get the results. On AWS, all the computational part of that is delegated to batch. Batch is just a, from their standpoint, is an execution system that takes an input and takes the uh, requirements of what they want to get done. At the end of it, it spits out some da you know, data back to S3, right? is the most common pattern. So at its heart, it's just an execution system that has all the semantics of a batch system. It has jobs, it has queues, and it runs things in parallel, whether they are distributed naively across many machines or as a single unit with MPI jobs, uh, or as we call them, multi-node parallel jobs. So that's what it is. It is also does two things specifically. It's a scheduler. So we built our own scheduler that understands things like spot instances. It understands things like auto-scaling. It has knowledge of what instances are available to it, and it has a rules engine at the back that tries to find the right instance type for the work that you have to do. Sometimes it bases it, you know, it tries to optimize based on what it knows about the behavior of a particular instance and the quality of the, like the CPU type, the memory, uh, memory bandwidth, things like that. 
And it's also a system that manages the life cycle of your job. It starts up when you have work and it spins down when it doesn't have any. So we, all of that collectively is what we call our patch execution engine, where all, I, all the customer needs to do is say, here's the work I want to do on this data. Here are the sort of high-level conditions that I want. Please do it for me. And this thing spins up. What are up. those high-level conditions? Uh, the most common ones are, here's my executable. Here is roughly the resources that my executable needs. It needs four gigs of memory per core, as an example. Or I really need a GPU for this because it's CUDA code. We aren't smart enough to figure that out yet. And uh, priority, like this is my higher priority job. So we actually have priority as a specific, it's a first class entity. And here's the fun part that's unique to AWS, which is I'm willing to pay 70% of on-demand of the on-demand price for an instance. So it puts it into a spot queue. And if you have a spot instance available at the right price, it'll even pick it even if it's like the memory to CPU ratio is very different. It's eight gigs of RAM per core, but if the price is right, why not? And we'll spin, up a co- we'll spin up an instance. You could build all of this on your own with a bidding engine and try and figure out how to use spot fleet. The fun part, the, the thing that Bash does, it takes all of that away from you and just says, give me your requirements and I'll execute them. Now, what makes this an interesting conversation is I've had discussions with people who are building schedulers. Usually, financial cost is not one of the axes that they're exploring on their scheduler system. That certainly priority is it. You know, priorities there, time and space, and you know the the different computing primitives that we think about as resources. But the money aspect of it is is really interesting, and you have that as as an axis because you have this spot market, and and I guess could you could you just explain that in more detail? How, why does financial cost fit into this scheduler model? Well, I think financial cost always fits into the scheduler model, except that when you are in a in a more traditional scheduler sense, it's built into the fact that you have a single shared cluster. Like the most common problem in any shared cluster, having run on many of them, is do you have the resources you need when you need them? Give you an example of a customer we talked to. They had this one professor on staff who who had the most funding. So when his funding came and the work came, he would take up 90%, sometimes even more, of their shared cluster. Everybody else at the institution had to fight for the remaining 10%. So you have a finite resource the whole idea of that schedule and the way traditional schedulers are designed is to take that shared resource and optimize it as best as you can. Most clusters in like shared facilities run at 100%. But what the trade-off that you make, which is effective the spot trade-off, is other things are not going to run because you don't have space. And or they ha- you, are, you actually have to write grants and say, no, no, I'm going to get space on this now and you know who's more important. Somebody's making that decision for you. So the calculus in a traditional scheduler is, I have an um, amount of resources. How do I use this n amount of resources effic- efficiently and effectively across the Y number of people and the Y number of jobs that want to run on it? In the cloud, that doesn't make sense. What you want to, what you really care about is, I have work, and this, this is how much I'm willing to pay for this work. And the cluster is essentially scoped to the job. You're not sharing it with anybody. It is just relevant for the purposes of your work. And when the work is done, the cluster goes away. So you're no longer trying to, although some of our customers still try and share work across the cluster, sometimes it makes sense. 
But for the most part, it's job scoped. You spin it up, you spin it down. You're no longer competing with somebody for resources on the same set of infrastructure. What you're now trying to figure out is, okay, who's, how much how much is going to cost? In a traditional shared cluster facility, that's kind of built into the fact that you had to buy the machine and put it in and all of that. But somebody's thinking about it. It's usually not the person running the work. One interesting thing about architecting AWS Batch is that you're not just building on kind of normal computer science primitives. You're building on top of other AWS services. So all those different types of runtimes we discussed earlier, EC2, Lambda, Fargate, ECS, these are all options for how you could schedule this computing this large computing job that might get issued to AWS Batch. How have you explored those different compute options when architecting AWS Batch? Yeah, so from a customer standpoint today, technically we support only EC2. We express it within containers. To some extent, that's a detail that you shouldn't have to care about. We do hear a lot about Fargate and Lambda as, hey, can you take this paradigm that you have for spinning up and shutting down resources and provide this to us with Fargate and Lambda. It's something we're thinking about quite a lot. With Fargate and Lambda, it's less of a problem right now because of the way they work. You're not spinning up machines anymore, but the whole idea of a queuing system that knows and has does the farm out and everything is something that we hear about a lot. To some extent, that role is played by step functions in those worlds. So step functions can do a lot of what batch does for EC2. Step functions can also run on top of batch because it's a big dependency graph in itself. But you can define a graph in step functions. Because Lambda functions are so small, the function gets executed the next step. If you need to go on to the next one, you go on to the next one. If you have to farm out your pipelines, uh, Lambda has the concept of forked events, event forked pipelines. You can use a queuing system like SQS to do that. So you can build those kind of architectures. But customers still have to build them. So one of the big things that we, have, we we do get feedback on is, can you give us similar capabilities for Lambda and Fargate? And we are trying to figure out exactly how it fits in because a lot of the lot of the feedback and use cases that we historically gone after is people struggling to do that with EC2 or ECS. Fargate and Lambda, I think people still haven't, with exceptions, started running those kind of crazy, sophisticated shared cluster scenarios. So I guess what I'm trying to ask you is you know, the the interface for the developer of interacting with Batch is, I've got this big Batch job, I want AWS Batch to take care of it, I want to think in terms of priority and cost and resources. Under the hood, AWS, go do whatever you yeah. want. Now you, Deepak Singh, are, you know, working on the architecture of what AWS Batch is actually going to do yeah. when the person says, okay, go ahead and run this. So are you saying that that all that goes on right now under the hood is it gets scheduled onto EC2 instances? Yeah, so the end result, it schedules on, gets scheduled onto an ECS cluster because we wrote a cust- yeah. we have built a custom ECS scheduler right. for, well, multiple custom ECS scheduler. We actually have multiple schedulers under batch. It happens to use Lambda and API Gateway heavily itself. But from a customer standpoint, right. the interface they see is a job. They see, they write a job definition and they put that job, basically put that work into a queue. You can have multiple queues. That's the only interface they really see. That's the only interface they should care about. In theory, there's nothing that says at the end of that interface, you shouldn't have an EC2 instance. You could have a Lambda function or a Fargate task. We haven't gone there yet. Right now, 
we execute it's a single container task we execute it we send it back put the data in s3 or efs or wherever you want to put it that's the current model but it apply i mean you could extend that model to any compute paradigm i think the needs and how people think about because they're coming from traditional batch computing much more better understood for a ec2 based world which is where we started right now when you're thinking about how to execute these batch jobs economically I mean, running it, running them on ECS makes a lot of sense to me. Would it be even more economical if you could schedule these batch jobs onto Lambda? I, I think uh, the folks the, at the Rise Lab in Berkeley, yes. yeah, so the stuff they've done with Pyran. Yes. Yeah, so there's nothing in Pyran that says that we couldn't build a batch system that does what Pyran does. Right now, they're about the only people who use Lambda in that sophisticated a way for the kind of sophisticated batch computing that you're doing. Really? There's not that many. I mean, most of the Lambda, batchy Lambda work is very event process, event, uh, real-time event processing kind of workloads, which yeah. step functions and Lambda can handle pretty easily without having to build job management, etc. But I think that's going to happen. And we do get that. We get a lot for Fargate actually now. Now that we've dropped Fargate prices, <laughs> it's a very common feature request. So you should expect... Uh, batch to start supporting in a, in a perfect world should support Arbit. In a perfect world, we would make the decision on which compute platform it goes to. Haven't gotten there yet. Have you talked to the Ber- the so the Berkeley folks who are all doing this research into serverless Jan Stoika and the you know the rest of the rest. Eric Jonas is the Jonas is the person I have spoken to whether the years ago before he got into Lambda. Okay. Yeah. Did you read the paper that came out kind yes. of recently? What do yes. you think of that? I mean, the work they've done with Pyron is just fascinating. The fact that they're able to get this kind of performance out of the systems that they've built, it's a great example of showing that you should not, uh, if you identify the right kind of workload and you understand what you're doing with it, the, that the scale that you can achieve at the cost targets that you can achieve with Lambda are just fascinating. I think this is the first examples that we have seen of people doing mega scale yeah. computing with just serverless. It's not naive computing, it's pretty complex computing. Right. And I think much like AmpLab and RadLab before RiseLab uh, defined a lot about how people were going to do big data back in the day, I think you, you will get some very interesting fallout from the work that they're doing, which will, in the end, make it into more customers will get interested. That will then result in us having to build things to address sort of the broader use case. Well, what I found so cool about that paper and kind of heretical in some ways was it was like, this is a scientific paper that is around like a, a commercial tool. It was almost like looking at a commercial tool as a science, as a scientific project that is, is yet unexplored. I think it's not that, if, if you go back to 20, 2009, 2010, you'll find a lot of papers from RadLab, which was a mm-hmm. predecessor of what is now RiseLab, which were very similar and they were doing things with EC2 because EC2 was right. unique at the time. Sure. I think it's, it's a okay. question of, they are de- computing. The The whole purpose of that facility is to look at new ways and new patterns of computing. Yeah. Ten years ago, that was EC2. Right. Now it's serverless. Yeah. So I think that's just an evolution of where computing is going. And just like their early work on EC2 was, a, was an early indicator of where the world was going, I suspect this is too. So in that paper, they have this exploration of different storage mediums for serverless functions. And... They basically conclude that like we don't have the ideal storage mechanism for doing serverless computing. It was was what I understood about that. Do do you remember that part? Not enough to opine on it with any uh, large scale of detail. 
I do think with traditional batch computing, I think from a, for a lot of the applications that people run on serverless world, something like Dynamo is just perfect. It fits that mo model really well, not necessarily for the kind of computing that the Pyron folks were doing. It's one of the more interesting aspects of the computing that happens in, uh, with batches, you're still very, the applications very much still expect file systems. It's one of the reasons why adding support for FSx for Luster was one of the biggest feature requests we had for AWS Batch. Well, support for a parallel distributed file system like Luster was from our customers early on because their applications almost expected it. I do think now with, with some of the newer instances, which are very high bandwidth to S3, I think those are the models, uh, that and DynamoDB, especially something like DAX in front of it, are the models that most customers will be able to uh, use very effectively. There could be new storage types that come up. I, I haven't looked at it enough to have a meaningful answer to that. The things I remember, well, I guess the thing I remember most distinctly about like the stateful serverless workloads were like Lambda function to Lambda function communication, or I, I don't remember, what are the ways in which storage storage mediums are, are insufficient for doing Lambda processing? And you have to, yeah, I'm assuming, I, I'll have to go back, look, I, based on what you said, yeah. I'm assuming you take a hop from Lambda to a data store and bring it down again, right. and I think they must, might have been talking about going directly. I yeah. don't I'll have to go check. Which you can't do today, Well, you can, do, you can use something like Kinesis to stream data from yeah. one process to the other. Yeah. So, I, I, as I said, I, I don't know enough, but yeah, uh, I do think that how people design their applications is going to evolve. Historically, you always assumed on a shared storage system, usually a big shared parallel file system, to do it. In the cloud, you have different storage patterns. It's how you, you know, it's, I'm sure they'll, everything will evolve together. I want to jump to a totally different topic, and we can come back to Batch, but just because of we're at AWS Summit and you know, this was discussed today. But since we've been talking about AWS Batch, which is, I think of as very transient workloads, on the other side of the spectrum, you have long-lived workloads, maybe services that we need to run for a long time. And the, you know, the I think the one necessary component for a modern distributed runtime of long-lived services is this idea of a service mesh or a service proxy. Every large company that I've talked to, uh, you know, has some kind of service mesh or service proxy. And App Mesh is a tool from AWS that recently went into general availability. Yeah, today. Today, yeah. So describe what you see as the functionality of the service mesh category. It's kind of funny when we started, uh, it's one of the lessons we learned from app mesh. Uh, when we started a couple of years ago, we had this notion that people were building certain kinds of applications and containers. And when you have lots of services, you, need, you basically get this big graph of things talking to each other. And along the way, something like, you know, you had patterns like smart stack from Airbnb that have been around for a while uh, that did something similar to what we call service mesh today that allowed your application to talk to a local proxy that then talk and the proxies talk to each other. Uh, even in traditional sort of uh, web computing, you had the uh, systems, like systems we've had at Amazon for a long time where you built an application, you put some, talk to some library which I know you had to embed the library in the system, but when you deployed it, you suddenly got graphs and metrics and alarms and everything that you needed. But as applications have become more and more decomposed into smaller and smaller components, 
and they're polyglot. You're writing them in different kinds of languages. There are different kind of components in the system. Keeping track of all of this becomes really tricky. But I think the sig- and that's why I think service meshes got very popular in the container world because people are starting to deploy two things. A lot of these kinds of applications are being written for containers and deployed inside a container orchestration system. And the second part was you had an entity, the container orchestrator, that could sort of manage the life cycle of the of the control plane of this mesh. We but we realized a couple of things. One is in the end, what is a mesh? It is a network. It is a network that lives at layer seven. You know, if you think about traditional networks, you are thinking about IP addresses. You're thinking about side ranges. When two things communicate with each other, you're thinking in terms of net. You know, traditional layer three, layer four networking. Most application developers just want to know, can my application foo talk to application bar? And can it find it? And which applications and components in my network is it allowed to talk to? So for us, uh, AppMesh is not a service mesh. It is an application layer network. It's a fabric on which applications talk to each other. At GA, these applications are run in containers with a proxy next to it, a sidecar proxy. They are run on EC2, which could also have a sidecar proxy running in it. In this case, the sidecar proxy is Envoy. But we see perceive it as an application network, and your services get deployed into that network. As opposed to a lot of the other way, I think the other way a lot of people think about meshes is you have this container orchestrator that is the controller of all things, and everything runs inside that. But that gets very limiting because no one runs inside the context, you know, it's very rare to find your entire info, everything running in the context of one cluster. If you're running across clusters, now you have to figure out how clusters communicate with each other, etc. When all you really want to think about is your application and how do my compo- how do the components of my application communicate? So for us, AppMesh is this application layer fabric, app- application layer network, where today you can deploy it in ECS, you can deploy it in EKS, in Fargate. Run your own arbitrary homegrown container scheduler that you've built however you want to. You could build something just on EC2 and have no containers at all. They're just services. The heart of this is something called, uh, there's two hearts. One is Envoy, which is the sidecar proxy that we support. That allows us to build a very rich set of partners. Uh, we announced with I think, 13, a very large number of partners today in the monitoring and security space. The second one because they all have Envoy plugins. They all have Envoy plugins, or in some cases, like X-Ray, we upstream the plugin. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, the second part is CloudMap, which is our service discovery service from AWS. It's a, essentially, think of it as, it is a, you can register any arbitrary resource into it. Cl- uh, AppMesh uses CloudMap to say, hey, this is service foo. It wants to talk to service bar. Foo and bar are registered into CloudMap. But bar could also be an... DynamoDB table in theory. And suddenly your mesh knows that this application depends on this DynamoDB table over here. And uh, in the future, we don't do it yet, you could have up ALBs and API gateways as part of this mesh as well. So your mesh is just this, all these things that communicate with each other. And the goal of AppMesh is to make sure you have this consistent dynamic configuration. AppMesh also has safe deployment practices built into it, has deployment APIs, uh, it can do weighted traffic, rollback. All of that's built into the mesh because we assume people are going to use it that way. Are there any interesting places of overlap between the increase in event-driven architecture and how you have built AppMesh? 
I don't think so. I think AppMesh assumes that what AppMesh assumes is two things want to talk to each other. They need permissions to talk to each other. They need policies that define if they're allowed to talk to each other. And they need visibility into that communication. Uh, so AppMesh focuses on providing the configuration. Are things allowed to talk? Uh, how they're allowed to talk? And what kind of visibility can we give you? So we like to, in many ways for me, something like X-Ray is a feature of the mesh. It's a, it's how, it's a map. You know, it gives you all the communication. And so I think that's, that's how we think about it. So if you have events coming in, they should, they're still part of this network that you are using and you can manage and control and communicate over. So I do think event-driven patterns are super interesting, but that's, I don't think that, that's almost orthogonal to how, at least. Yeah. We want, the goal of AppMesh is it's your fabric that you're deploying your applications yeah. into. Okay, that's what I thought. So not to make you repeat yourself, but can you go a little bit deeper into the distinction between the service mesh idea and the app mesh idea? I think in some ways they're exactly the, they're similar. Uh, I think app mesh is a little more broad where most service meshes, at least the way people talk about them, are very constrained. And I have a container scheduler. I have services running inside that. Yeah. I'm installing a proxy next right. to it. We think of app we think of the network proxy envoy as just one component of the data plane that app mesh will manage over okay time. i see i yeah. see because yeah. you have these abstractions like s3 or elbs and these things are not like addressable containers yeah. like most of the things that you want to instrument with your service mesh exactly and so you want to be able to instrument elbs if you're getting ingress traffic and you know uh, get authenticate over there the part that we don't have in app mesh but it's in our roadmap for app mesh is public so you can go look at it as uh, having end-to-end encryption and mutual TLS and very, very fine-grained policy management. So as a security operator, Absolutely. it becomes a very powerful tool in your portfolio. Uh, and so I think that's where we get super excited. And uh, so co- I've had some conversations around that topic where like one advantage is if you have this sidecar that's doing policy management the policy lookups for your application are much cheaper because otherwise you would have to go out to some central policy manager. Is that the is that the main advantage? That is one of the advantages. I mean, client side, like at its simplest, your sidecar is a client side load balancer, yeah. and it is a local a local agent that has a cache of what policies you're allowed and who you're allowed to talk to. And the goal of the control plane for AppMesh is just to keep reconfiguring it and making sure it has the right policy. Yeah. attached to it and then your app was only talking to this thing right next to it it is one of the big advantages of it i don't think it's the only one any um, other what are some other security benefits uh, so i think the the main one is you can apply a policy at a very very fine grain level like today your roles and all are applied at an infrastructure level not at the application level as much now you're applying very fine grain policy at an application level which means at the infrastructure level you don't need to necessarily go in and apply very detailed policies because you're managing your traffic it's much easier to reason about if you're doing it at the application layer. Mm-hmm. So I think those are some of the advantages. It's it's not just about performance and speed. It's also about how you reason in, about it and simplicity, especially in a world where you're doing DevOps, where I like to joke how many developers understand side error ranges and all the details of network infrastructure. Not that many. <laughs> a few. Not that many. And I think, on the other hand, they all understand application behavior. Right. So I think that's one of the biggest advantages. But you also have somebody who cares about compliance, et cetera, being able to define those policies. So I think it's a great uh, way to build robust, scalable systems that are very developer-friendly, but also are 
resilient and allow the compliance people to be effective as well. So we're wrapping up. I I talked to you for a long time, but because we're at the AWS summit in Santa Clara, can you give me your brief like state of AWS address? So like what's new today? Where's the organization going? What are you excited about? What kinds of new customer trends are you seeing? Lots to be excited about. I would, I'll, I'll pick a few macro things. I think we are definitely seeing this what we, we call modern applications where when people are building applications today, they tend to be either targeted at something like Fargate or Lambda. Containers in general, Fargate specifically and Lambda, some more serverless models with your state living in a managed system like especially now that we have so many databases that can be pur- that are purpose built for a particular use case um, these decomposed decoupled architectures are they used to be the internet savvy sort of modern you know hip companies doing it now enterprises are doing it along with that is coming this raise of focus and success uh, desire to be very good at CICD and automated deployments i would almost say that is the first start of it before you do anything with microservices or fancy you want to do CI/CD, and we see our customers really embracing that. So automated deployment, so the CI/CD world, using serverless for building applications, especially as microservices, huge. Like we see that across the board, regardless of what type of customer you are. And the other part is, and this is not a surprise, is the growth of machine learning as, some, as a competency. The tools have become so much more powerful, so much more accessible. Like you don't have to be you know, have a PhD in in computer science from a fancy university uh, to be a machine learning scientist. There's tools available, frameworks available that get you going really quickly. And then you have things like purpose-built services like Transcribe and Comprehend that, you know, that solve so many problems for you. So I think you combine those three, you're seeing those, at least from where I'm sitting, the things I look at, those are trends that are just fascinating to see evolve. And uh, machine learning is especially interesting because it sort of marries things it marries batch computing and like supercomputing with big data in very interesting ways. So those are trends that and I think I see I'm super excited about. And I think the last one, uh, and I'll just call it out, is our customers are getting very, you know, we used, customers used to build, used to lift and shift and then build new applications. I think they started to rethink, fundamentally rethink how they build applications because of the tools that are available to them. They're much more willing and, and want to run these optimized systems, and they're l- happy to let AWS make makes decisions on their behalf, where five years ago they may not have been, but the tools have reached a point where they're very, they're, they're much more comfortable doing it, and that allows us to build more interesting tools for, and services for them. Deepak Singh, until next time. Thank you very much. Wow.